We uh, continue this morning in our study of the Gospel of John. It is uh, still the case that we are in John chapter 12. Now we've, we've said along and along, John chapter 12 is sort of a, a transitional chapter. John chapter 12 covers the time period after the resurrection of Lazarus into the Lord's last week of earthly ministry before the cross. Uh, we, we were there in the Gospel of John on, on the Sunday morning of what we have come to call the triumphal entry. When Jesus, if you, if you caught the Beyond the Notes podcast that week, um, that, that very day, perhaps, precisely predicted in the prophecies of Daniel, Passover at Jerusalem, they cried out, save us now, save us now, that's what Hosanna means. And their expectation was at a high that this, this son of man, this Messiah, who had in then recent days revealed in the raising of Lazarus that, that ultimate of his seven signpost miracles recounted in the Gospel of John, that he was the master over even death. Surely now... Surely now comes our conquering messianic king to, to deal with the oppression of the Roman Empire, reestablish the power of geopolitical Israel, set up a kingdom and make things right. We know that by Friday morning, right around dawn, Many in that same crowd will be, will be in the crowd crying out, instead of save us now, save us now, they'll be crying, crucify him, crucify him. From Sunday to Friday. And we see in the passage before us this morning uh, a mile marker on the journey from Hosanna to crucify John, unlike the other Gospels, the other Gospels sort of give us the, the, the chronology of the week from various viewpoints. And when harmonized together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us a fairly full picture of the day-by-day the day of that week. John doesn't do it that way. John pulls out certain moments without a lot of context in terms of where we are in the course of these few days. But, but moments and mile markers. So it is with John chapter 12, verses 27 through 34, a passage I've entitled, The Cross Looms Closer. John 12, verses 27 through 34, Jesus is speaking. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people 
to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? I've taken the passage and broken it down into several sort of grouped observations. Let's take a walk through it together. Roman numeral one on your outline, the conflict. The conflict. Jesus knows what he faces just short days ahead. That on Friday of this week, he will endure not only the, the physical agony of death by crucifixion, which death he has anticipated from all the way back into eternity past. And certainly in his earthly ministry, he has repeatedly made reference to this upcoming event. But it's not the physical agony that is most, well, agonizing for him. For the first time since eternity past, for the only time in all of eternity, he will endure separation from his father as he takes upon himself the just and righteous wrath of God the Father on the cross for the forgiveness of sin, he will, I believe, in the space of those three hours of darkness from about noon to about three, and we'll get there, he's gonna endure separation from his Father, that which he has never experienced and will never experience again. So letter A on your outline, his real emotion now is my soul troubled. He knows what he's facing. Now I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna seek to apply that a little bit. What do we do with, with that sense of turmoil he's dealing with as he faces now the, the, the looming cross? All, all too often, in, in conversations about knowing and doing God's will, discovering what God wants from, from me or from you as a next step. All too often in, in, in our era, I, I hear people use some sort of internal peace meter as their means to determining what's God's will. You might have heard phrases like, well, I know this is what I'm supposed to do. I, I feel such peace about it. Or for some reason, add the uh, indefinite article, I feel a peace about it, which is odd. I don't know what the A is doing in that sentence, but that's the turn of phrase that somehow makes it into our lexicon. I know what God wants me to do because of the varying courses of action that lay before me. This is the one about which I feel the least tumultuous. I... I I want to caution you a little bit, if I may. First, <laughs> nowhere in the Word of God are we encouraged to use internal feelings of peace as a means to knowing God's will. That idea is completely foreign to the Bible. Completely foreign to the Bible. And I offer 
a counterexample. Does the Lord feel completely peaceful here about his course of action? Ain't what he said. Feelings of internal peace about a given course of action are a reliable indicator that you have discovered, in fact, the path of least resistance. Congratulations. You now know what you can do that won't hassle you very much. And of course, you feel peaceful about it. I don't blame you. Feelings of internal peace are nowhere in God's word prescribed as a reliable indicator that you have found God's will. Take some time tomorrow on the Beyond the Notes podcast to talk a little bit about how we can know and do God's will. Here, Jesus is not feeling at peace. His emotions are very, very real. But what he does have, and what I believe many of us mean, when we say we have come to peace with a given course of action, even if it's difficult, at our best, I believe what we mean is we are resolved to obedience. We know what God's will requires of us in this moment, and whatever internal conversation we had to have about that, that conversation has ended, and we are resolved to a course of action. I pray that when we talk about, I have found peace, what we mean to say is, I have found resolve. I am settled. Because Jesus certainly demonstrates this here. Letter B, his resolved direction. What shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? For this purpose I have come to this hour. I I come to the cross. His Father's reassuring affirmation, let her see. He cries out, Father, glorify your name. Now, it's important to recall that, especially in the Gospel of John, the, the, the verb to glorify has a fairly broad range of meanings, but, but in, in the usage that, that John uses as God the Holy Spirit led him to use the word, the word means to reveal as it is. When spoken of God, it means to reveal him as he is, to further advance the revelation of the character and the holiness, the love, the justice, the reality of God as he is. Father, glorify your name. The answer comes from heaven. I, will, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I am seeking the glory of me in all things that my creation would know of me. Thus the cross glorifies God in the exhibition of his incredible love. That a savior would endure the cross for the sake of his people, that he would undergo that torture, that separation from God, that that unjust death. But the cross also reveals and glorifies God by so doing, the justice and wrath of a holy God upon sin. Father's reaffirmation, which letter two, I mean, Roman two, brings us to the crowd and their response to this voice from heaven. God speaks, I have glorified and will glorify it again. Letter A, the crowd cannot comprehend the content. They make the statement, it thundered. You hear that? That was, that was rolling thunder. Well, no, it wasn't, it was words. That moment reminds me of, of 1 Corinthians 2.14. Now, this is not on your outline. 
But you can make a note in the margin or on your device or whatever. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. God spoke, but most in the crowd said, I, I hear something, but I have no idea what it is. Sounds like maybe thunder. God has spoken. And most of the crowd out there still has no idea what he said. You and I are called to be his ambassadorial interpreters, reinforced by the power of the Holy Spirit in us and the convicting influence of the Holy Spirit in them to bring home to their heart the message of the word of God, which on their own they have no hope of comprehending. They'll hear something like the thunder, but they cannot comprehend the content. Second, generally they will not acknowledge the source. Some others in the crowd said, an angel has spoken to him. Whatever we're hearing cannot be God speaking to man. Maybe it's an angel. Today we hear the luminaries of the age say that this book is contrived, that this book is the source of a bunch of, of philosophers and councils and uh, all manner of, of historical influences. While God may have used some of those things, God the Holy Spirit has assembled for us the Word of God across centuries, across geography, across ethnicity, across gender, across economic circumstance. God the Holy Spirit has given us His Word. God has spoken. I used to be envious of people who lived in Bible times. I used to look at a moment like this and go, wow, to have been standing there and to have heard God, have heard God say these words. But then I realized nobody in that crowd had the incredible book of Colossians. Nobody in that crowd had the practical instruction of the book of James, the glorious doctrinal clarity of the book of Romans. We've got more than they had. We have more content delivered in the voice of God to us than they had. The Father, let her see, by his grace, still speaks. Roman numeral three, the conquest. The conquest. Here Jesus is gathered in whatever setting this is with whatever small crowd this is. In just days he will stand before the judgment bar of the world. Pilate is the governor of the Roman Empire province of Judah. Pilate is the representative of Caesar, the most powerful emperor the world had to that point ever known. He will stand directly before the representative of the world's superpower and he will stand there to be judged. And his only substantive response, I suppose, the one that Caesar, I mean, pardon me, that Pilate certainly heard, 
was along the lines of, <laughs> you need to know who's in charge here. Because while you think on your high perch, you're judging me, I have in fact already judged the world. See, this is his, this is his moment where he, where he frames up and announces his victory. Letter A, the conquest over the world now is the judgment of this world. This world that thinks itself such a big deal. He's not talking about the, the, the mineralogical orb hanging in orbit around the sun. He's talking about a system of mindsets, authorities, purported wisdom. And here he says, my death on the cross pronounces judgment on all of that. Now the prince of this world, let her be, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Henry Morris, in his very good book of the same title, calls it the long war against God. When he describes this created world's war with its creator, starting, by the way, with the refusal of most of this created world to even admit it has a creator. Morris takes the position that Satan forgot for a moment that he was a created being when he said, I will be like the most high. No creature can say that to its creator without dire consequences. And since then, this world has been a battleground as that which is very, very powerful is consistently outmaneuvered by that which is omnipotent. And here Jesus says the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, all of those are going to, to seal in the sight of all with eyes to see that Satan is a, a beaten foe. He is a badly whipped dog on a very short leash. Don't you go around saying the devil made you do stuff. He can't. He wants to. But if you're a child of God, he has as much influence over your life as you give him. If you're lost, by the way, if you're outside of Christ, you probably don't even believe in him and he's perfectly okay with that because you are dancing on his strings and you don't even know it. Only Jesus Christ can set you free from that. The ruler of this world will be cast out. Victory over the world, over the devil, let her see victory over the deadness and apathy of his people's flesh. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. What a marvelous, miraculous thing. See, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and other places in the Word of God describe those of us who, well, all of us, because we are born in a world at war with God, because we are born downstream of the corruption introduced by Adam and Eve, we're dead. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We are without hope. Let me ask you something. How, how loudly must you shout a good news message in order that a dead person respond to it? 
Have you got that kind of volume? I don't, and I got a lot of volume. All right, let me ask a different question. How, how compellingly and wisely must you compose your apologetic argument in order that you would cause a dead person to change his point of view? We've got nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The, the phrase Jesus uses here, when I am lifted up, is a play on words that goes two ways. To the, to the contemporaneous audience, to the, to the Gentiles that might have been listening, it was common usage in the Roman era. To lift up was a euphemism for crucifixion. To be lifted up was to be crucified. And his audience that day heard him because he said he, he is showing by what kind of death he was going to die. They heard him. He's plainly here saying that his crucifixion is coming. To the Jewish people in his audience, the play on words goes another direction. It's a reference to the bronze serpent of Numbers chapter 21 that was lifted up in the wilderness. It's only a few verses. It's a paragraph in Numbers 21. You can find it. You can read it. There's a, a moment where the faithless Jews wandering in the wilderness bring upon themselves from the living God a plague of very, very poisonous serpents. Very, they're called fiery snakes. And they come into the camp of the Israelites and they're biting them and they're dying. They're biting them and they're dying. The judgment of God is wreaking havoc among the Israelites. God instructs Moses, create a bronze image of a serpent. Lift it up on a pole and encourage the people, look at it. Look and live. No amount of their effort will help them. No amount of their scrambling around will help them. Only if they look to the gracious salvation which I have provided, only then will they be saved. Jesus made reference to that incident in his conversation with Nicodemus all the way back in John 3. Here he references it again. It is a Letter D, it is a statement of his divine intentionality as he is lifted up. Finally, Roman numeral four, the contempt. The contempt. Remember, not many days previous. Save us now, save us now. Comes our, comes our king. Here, the crowd answered him with contempt first, for prophecy. We have heard from the law, that is we know from our Old Testaments that the Christ remains forever, the Messiah remains forever. We're real familiar with and real fond of the, the conquering king, Messiah, that we, we can't anticipate from Old Testament prophecy. We're ready for a savior who comes and solves our wish list of issues, starting with our political issues, specifically the Roman Empire. We're ready to follow a savior that will fix our list of things we think need fixing. The prophecy of Psalm 22 that spells out the Crucifixion in agonizing detail, the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 
the most detailed description in the Old Testament of the role and ministry of the suffering servant. Oh, don't bother us with those. The prophecy of a lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world as even shared by his cousin, John the Baptist, early in Jesus' earthly ministry. Well, that's just not nearly as interesting to us. They show contempt for prophecy. Second, they show contempt for his price. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up, that is, crucified? How can they know Son of Man to be a messianic title? Make no mistake, every time Jesus used that title for himself, they heard him calling himself the Messiah. How can you say he'd be crucified? Makes no sense to us at all. It certainly doesn't solve the problems we think the Savior ought to be working on. Contempt for his price. Contempt for the fact that he is going to take upon himself punishment that it would, it would require of them eternity to absorb. He, being eternal in his nature, can absorb it in ours. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not only contempt for his prophecy and for his price, but also finally contempt for his person. Who is this son of man? One modern paraphraser says, what kind of savior is that? If you won't give me what I want, what I think matters most. What kind of savior are you? Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm living with the fact that I've, I've, lost, I've lost my job and I can't find another one. And the bills are piling up and you, you seem to, to not be acting to do anything about it. What kind of savior are you? I'm living with a medical diagnosis that, that seems on course to kill me and kill me soon and you're not doing anything about it. What kind of savior are you? My, my family is in a shambles and I know enough about you to know that you could fix it in an instant and you haven't. What kind of savior are you? I've got a list of things that bug me. And you're not doing what I think you ought to do. What kind of savior are you? Start to see where crucify, crucify is coming from, don't we? You know what? I'll tell you what kind of savior he is. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You've got any number of difficulties, me too. And I gotta tell you, God has the disquieting habit of not doing things precisely like I wish he would. 
It's as though he has in mind that he's God and I'm not. Imagine that. He has, however, solved fully, finally, and forever my only eternal problem. Myriad other problems are going to come and go. He may or may not give me my way on a variety of matters. But the one that was going to have me roasting alive forever, he fixed it. He forgave me. He adopted me. He loves me. And he is working all things together, according to Romans 8, 28, not to give me my way, which would often be mired in my own ridiculously bad judgment. But rather, he is working all things together for good as he sees it for me. You don't know him and you're concerned about some things, can I tell you, you're not worried enough. You really aren't. Because odds are it's going to get bad, and then it's going to get worse, and then it's going to get worse, and then for you personally, it's going to get way, way worse. And that's that, forever. But if you will turn from your sin and come to the one who paid the price for sinners, Maybe you get to keep your sore knee. I always use sore knee because my right knee hurts on cold wet days, so I've got a sore knee that I deal with a lot. <laughs> or worse, I'm not making light of your worst problem. I truly not. I'm just reminding you that your worst problem is your sin. And Jesus has opened the way for you to be forgiven. You might get to keep some of your lesser problems but the one you'll still be dealing with 10 billion times 10 billion years from now is solved only in Jesus. Come to Jesus. If you are in Christ, trust him all the more. Say, Brother Russell, some weeks it feels like the world is going to all new levels of crazy. I know, I know, trust Jesus, follow Jesus, live for Jesus, be faithful until he tells you he's done with you on earth. Then go to Jesus and celebrate forever.